Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscal your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I am your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. We've got a lengthy episode this week, but first, I do owe you all an apology. So last week, we had a Law 140 only and I was hoping to have a Thursday episode with the actual news, uh, but that didn't happen. So you've got a double dose of news this week. I've got a 20-page outline staring back at me, uh, and we're going to go through all of it. Uh, I do have a podcast note, and that is that earlier this week, or I guess technically last week, a couple days ago, uh, I was interviewed by Lito Copley and Valerie Johnson, who are hosts of the Law Sisters podcast. So if you have any interest in uh, sexual harassment, Title VII, that type of stuff, sex discrimination at work. Uh, they have a fantastic podcast that I mentioned ages ago when I talked about the podcast that I listened to, and they had me on as one of their guests. So I'll let you know when the episode drops, but you can find them on Twitter. It's at Law Sisters. And when that comes out, I'll make sure to give you a link to it. Another podcast note, I am soliciting your questions for our next episode of What the Fisk. That is WT Fisk, where I answer whatever questions you will have. Uh, It's going to run on July 9th. That is the Monday after Independence Day. Uh, I've mentioned in a prior episode that Independence Day is my favorite holiday of the year. Second is Thanksgiving. Third typically is Commencement. Fourth is Easter. Fifth is Christmas. So on down the line. Uh, But I go up and visit my grandparents during that holiday and decided that I was just going to take a couple extra days off because this year Independence Day is right smack in the middle of the week. So I will likely not be recording while I'm up there, which means I need your questions ahead of time so I can record an episode before I leave. Make sure to tweet them at us. You can use the hashtag Fisk, that is hashtag F-S-C-K, or just tweet us at our Twitter account, which is at Fiskamol, because I was about to say, if you've not already done so, make sure to join the conversation online. We are on Twitter, at Fiskamol. Again, that's at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a written comment, you can do that on the website, fiscamall.com. That's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our financial sponsors, one of our patrons, you can do that on patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. You can also text and message me there. You can listen to some of the bonus episodes we have. There's other goodies there for people that happen to uh, support us. And it's also where I get some of my stories. So our patrons tend to send me messages with stories that is helpful as well. So, okay, as far as politics goes, I'm not going to get too deep into it because there's always like an unending barrage of shit going on. And we have enough criminal justice fuckery to talk about. I'm going to talk briefly about this whole kerfuffle involving Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was very politely asked to leave the Red Hen restaurant in, uh, was it Lexington? I think it was Lexington, Virginia. Basically, the uh, the staff saw this woman come in. They served her. I mean, they, she wasn't rejected outright. The staff took her order, gave them appetizers and everything else. Uh, but several of the employees felt uncomfortable serving this woman, working for our beloved papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, who is uh, not the most empathetic person in the world when it comes to minorities or the LGBT community. So the owner of the restaurant asked the employees what they wanted to do, and they took a vote, and they wanted her to leave. So the owner politely took Miss Sanders aside, took her outside, explained the situation, 
asked her to leave and said that she didn't even have to pay for the food they had already gotten, that it would be on the house. And of course, the internet had a fucking meltdown. You have conservatives who were totally cool just a couple weeks ago with bakers not making gay wedding cakes. Now, all of a sudden, are terribly offended that a politician, which is not a protected class, by the way, was asked to leave a restaurant. You have liberals who are outraged that Sanders then complained about it. She actually tweeted out her outrage, uh, but tweeted it from her government-provided Twitter verified at PressSec, that's at PressSec for Press Secretary, Twitter account. And that's the part that no one seems to be paying a whole hell of a lot of attention to. The only person I noticed tweeting about it is Walter Schaub, who was the former ethics guy under Obama, and he correctly pointed out that broke the fucking law. You are not allowed to use your government accounts to reward your friends or smite your enemies. It is a violation of federal ethics law. Specifically, the Code of Federal Regulations, we've talked about that before. Well, under 5 CR section 2635.702, use of public office for private gain, subsection A, inducement or coercion of benefits, it says, quote, an employee shall not use or permit the use of his government position or title or any authority associated with his public office in a manner that is intended to coerce or induce another person, including a subordinate, to provide any benefit, financial or otherwise, to himself or to friends, relatives, or persons with whom the employee is affiliated in a non-governmental capacity. It's like if a restaurant owner wanted to kick out a cop and the cop flashed a badge and said, you better not kick me out or else. It's the same type of deal. When you have a press secretary bitching about the fact she was politely asked to leave her dinner using the government Twitter account to bring forth the troll armies to try and devastate this business. One, it's fucking petty. She has a total right to complain. Cool. That's part of the First Amendment. She can use her personal account to do it. But if you're asked to leave, what's the fucking harm? You leave a bad Yelp review and call it a day instead of using your Twitter account with its three million followers to try and extract vengeance on these people. Uh, but beyond that, it was fucking illegal. And no one seems to highlight that part. We're all too busy, you know, yelling at each other about irrelevant shit about how each side's hypocritical. That part doesn't matter. The woman broke the fucking law. Uh, so, all right, that's politics. That's all I'm going to talk about. No, I'm not going to talk about the immigrants. I've talked about that enough online. It's it's a it, – Jesus. Um, yeah, Trump administration sucks. Fuck Donald Trump. Fuck Attorney General Beauregard. They're all incompetent. I hope they all lose in November. Uh, in criminal justice news, so we start usually with court stuff. Out of the Second Circuit, one of the few cases that does not – uh, award qualified immunity to police. The case is Simon versus New York. I'll give you a link to the opinion in the show notes. And um, the summary, they've actually got an opening paragraph that summarizes it pretty well. I don't have to go deep, too deep into the opinion for you. Uh, it says, quote, Plaintiff Alexina Simon brought this action in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of New York under 42 United States Code Section 1983 claiming that a state prosecutor and two police officers falsely arrested and imprisoned her in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Simon alleges that the defendants unlawfully detained her for 18 hours over two days on the authority of a warrant that, on its face, directed officers to bring Simon to court at a fixed date and time for a hearing to determine whether she should be detained as a material witness. Those are called material witness warrants, by the way. Simon was never presented to the court. The district court held that the defendants are entitled to qualified immunity and granted summary judgment in their favor. We conclude that with the facts taken 
taken in the light most favorable to Simon, the defendants violated Simon's clearly established Fourth Amendment rights and are therefore not entitled to qualified immunity. Hell's bells. Like, that almost never happens. So I'll give you a link to that opinion. It's pretty fantastic. In uh, general research news, out of Newsweek, we have a uh, water is wet study. Turns out police killings are damaging to black folks' mental health. From the news story, and we're going to give you a link to the actual study itself so you can review that as well. But the news story on the study says, quote, racism is more than a social institution and manifests in mental health as a pervasive indicator of inequity. And among black Americans, the cost is much higher, a new study says. Black Americans' mental health suffers from recurring exposure to police killings of unarmed black men and women, according to a study published Thursday in the British journal The Lancet, titled Police Killings and Their Spillover Effects on the Mental Health of Black Americans. The findings implicate racism as an agent of health disparities that affect entire communities rather than just the direct family members of those killed. In a survey of more than 100,000 black Americans, respondents reported more days of poor mental health in the months following police killings, whether exposed through word of mouth, TV, written articles, or social media. And they mentioned specifically the live-streamed execution of Philando Castile up in Minnesota. Respondents reported their behavior in behavioral risk factor surveillance system interviews from 2013 to 2015. Poor mental health days were characterized by heightened awareness of institutionalized racism, lower self-worth, fear of victimization, and distrust toward law enforcement. Because of the sheer amount of police killings, black adults were more likely to expect to die. Throughout the survey, respondents were exposed to one police killing in the state every three months. Now, again, this is in their state, at least one every three months, about four per year. The most marked effects occurred in the immediate weeks and months following publicized killings. So, of course, I went to the study and actually pulled it up. And one of the key quotes says, quote, mental health impacts were not observed among white respondents and resulted only from police killings of unarmed black Americans, not unarmed white Americans or armed black Americans. Remember, we've talked in a prior podcast, police across the country kill on average 3.2 people per day. If you tell me any given number of folks killed in any given year, I can usually get you the month. Most of the time I can get you the week and sometimes I can get you the exact day that particular death happened because police execute people like clockwork in this country. Uh, in federal news, so we are in the middle of an opioid crisis, as we've talked about before, but despite all that, Attorney General Beauregard and his United States Department of Justice has decided they're going to let drug dealers run wild so that they can focus on these incredibly fucking stupid misdemeanor prosecutions uh, on the border. From that story, it says, quote, federal prosecutors warned they were diverting resources from drug smuggling cases in Southern California to handle the flood of immigration charges brought on by the Trump administration's border crackdown records obtained by USA Today show. Days after Attorney General Jeff Beauregard Sessions instructed prosecutors to bring charges against anyone who enters the United States illegally, a Justice Department supervisor in San Diego sent an email to border authorities warning that immigration cases, subquote, will occupy substantially more of our resources. He wrote that the U.S. Attorney's Office there was, subquote, diverting staff, both support and attorneys, accordingly. The email, sent by the lawyer who runs the office's major crimes unit, said prosecutors needed to streamline their work on smuggling cases. He said that would mean tight deadlines, sometimes just a few hours to produce reports and recordings for those that would land in federal court. 
Going forward, the lawyer warned, if agents can't meet that high bar, subquote, the case will be declined. So good news for America's drug dealers. You get to go free as we can uh, detain kids along the border. Uh, in Arizona, in Tapawa, I guess is the name of the town. It's the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, a video that went viral on social media appears to show a Border Patrol vehicle drive off after it hit a man on a dirt road on the Tono Odom Nation. Paulo Remis, a resident of the nation, said he was taken to a hospital and treated for minor bruising after he was hit by an agent's SUV near the village of Tapawa, about 10 miles south of Sells, which is some 60 miles southwest of Tucson. According to Remus, the vehicle did not stop, and the agent did not check on him after the collision. Instead, he said the agent turned on the vehicle's sirens, which he initially understood as indicating someone was alerting paramedics. Instead, the vehicle sped away. What I think he did was turn on the sirens to get away from the scene of the crime, Remus said. The Tono Odom Nation described the video footage as disturbing, saying the safety and well-being of the general public is the nation's top priority. I looked at the video. This guy's a Border Patrol agent in an SUV and just completely runs the guy over. You see him go uh, airborne, and he tries to turn the phone to get the vehicle as it's leaving, and you see the SUV just drive off. It's ridiculous. Uh, in California, a uh, imperial police department officer has been charged with even more sex crimes. Uh, so this guy, Ryan Valenzuela back in March was charged with sodomy by force or fear with a minor oral copulation with a child under 14 years of age, arriving to a prearranged location for sex with a minor and lewd and lascivious acts with a minor under 14 years of age. So that was in March. Well, now we're in June, and from the story it says, quote, a former police officer accused of sex crimes is hit with more charges as another victim has come forward. Two new charges are being brought against former city of Imperial police officer Ray Valenzuela. He is accused of multiple sex charges against a minor. He was in court in Brawley Wednesday morning. Bail is currently set at $1 million. The district attorney's office wants to increase that based on the new charges. Fun times in Imperial. You're actually going to hear that same type of story several times this week because we have a lot of child molesters with badges. Out of Oakland, we have policing white space volume, whatever this is. I don't even know. Uh, but she goes by hashtag permit patty on social media. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a video that appeared to show a woman calling the cops on an eight-year-old black girl selling water outside her apartment building in San Francisco went viral Saturday after it was posted to Instagram by the girl's mother. But the woman in the video says she never called the cops, just the security for her building. And the video doesn't show the full story. Uh, it goes on from there, but here's the kicker. Turns out this woman, Allison Edel, again, calling the police on an eight-year-old black girl for selling bottled water, sealed, you can tell if it was not actually you know, tampered with for some reason, uh, calling cops on an eight-year-old girl for selling water without a permit. She's a fucking weed dealer. From a different story on the same case, it says, quote, Allison Edel, the woman seen on her phone in the video, told the San Francisco Chronicle that the eight-year-old girl and her mother had been on the sidewalk as they sold bottled water from a cooler for several hours, while Edel tried to work from home on her cannabis pet product company. Jesus Christ, I get weed is legal in California, but it's still illegal federally. You should probably think twice about summoning the police like they're your own personal customer service folks. Out of San Francisco, 
We have another first rule of Fisk. Uh, an armed suspect. I'm putting armed in air quotes because we don't actually know he was armed. Basically, a guy is running from police and is shot in the back. And spoiler alert, you're going to hear about that more than once this week, too. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, An armed suspect suffered a gunshot wound when he was shot in the back by a police officer in San Francisco. Body camera footage shows the officer approaching a group of men on a city corner before one of them flees the scene. The officer pursues the suspect on foot and eventually opens fire, injuring the man. An angry crowd then approaches the officer, but police say the suspect had pulled a gun from his waistband during the foot chase. I don't doubt that's hypothetically possible. It seems unlikely that it happened and that the officer saw it. But even if he did, shooting the guy in the back with bystanders nearby, he's lucky he didn't hit anyone else. It's fucking stupid. Out of Georgia. We got a lot of Georgia stuff this week. Georgia's a special place. Uh, let's start in Atlanta. So we got more policing white space, yet another example. In this one, a white guy in an SUV decided that he's going to block a black doctor from entering the gated community where she lives. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, A black doctor is upset at a man who racially profiled her when he blocked her from entering the community that she's lived in for about eight years. A part of the nearly 30-minute exchange was captured on camera. A police report indicates that Nena Ogowocha stated that she was attempting to enter the Buckhead townhome community after just coming off an overnight shift when another property owner stopped her at the gate entrance. He parked his car under the gate arm and refused to move forward to let her in despite her repeated requests. After police arrived on the scene, the man eventually did move his vehicle. The police spoke with both of them. The man told them there had been robberies in the area where people had been stealing AC units. WXIA, which is the news uh, agency, news station rather, doing this particular story, asked the president of the Homeowners Association whether there was any truth to that. They said they had no knowledge of HVAC robberies, but regardless, it would not excuse the man's behavior. And here's the kicker. He doesn't even live there. The story continues, quote, the man told police he owned property in the community, but he resides in Roswell. So that's in Atlanta. Uh, in Clayton County, we have a billion-dollar verdict for a rape trial. From that story, it says, quote, a Clayton County jury awarded a young woman $1 billion to be paid by a security company after an apartment complex guard was convicted of rape. The woman was just 14 years old when she was assaulted. It was 2012, and Hope Cheston was visiting a friend at a Clayton County apartment complex when the armed guard raped her. The guard, Brandon Lamar Zachary, is now serving 20 years in prison for rape and child molestation. Cheston is now 20 years old and a college student. The suit was against the security company that hired Zachary, Crime Prevention Agency Incorporated. The company has since changed names. So here's the thing. She's not going to get hardly any of that money because the company is either already out of business or they're going to declare bankruptcy. It was really a symbolic verdict. But if you wonder why we have things like qualified immunity, that's the reason why. The courts are going to tell you it's to make sure police can do their job and a whole bunch of bullshit. What's really the problem as far as they're concerned, and they're not going to admit this to you, but towns and cities, municipalities would be fucking bankrupted if they actually got held accountable for all of their crooked cops. Uh, in Cobb County, so there, there are some stories where I just cover it and I just I want to take a fucking shower afterwards. And this is one of those. I, I give you the summary, but I'm really just going to read you the quotes because it's just ugh. from the story. It says, quote, a Cobb County police officer accused of choking and slapping a mentally disabled woman during sex faces new charges involving the woman's 12 year old niece, according to police. 
In sexually explicit text messages between May 31st and June 12th, Robert Lanier knew, repeatedly attempted to solicit both the woman and her niece for sex, according to the arrest warrant obtained by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. New, 46, now faces criminal solicitation and computer pornography charges. The latest allegations come two days after New was arrested on charges. He assaulted the 44-year-old woman, who has the mental capacity of a 10 to 14 year old new was charged with felony aggravated assault and strangulation and misdemeanor simple battery in connection with the alleged abuse police believe new was using the woman to try to get to her niece Cobb police officer sarah o'hara told the ajc new met the woman online but police are still investigating which website the two use so not only did this guy prey upon a mentally disabled woman with the thought process of a young teen he then tried to get to her preteen daughter in the process. It's fucking gross. Uh, in South Fulton, there's a profile in CNN on the South Fulton criminal justice system. Uh, basically, this is the it's now the fifth largest city in Georgia, but it was just created last year. And as part of that, they were putting together the different initial officials to help run stuff. Uh, and by accident, it turns out the different agencies picking their people, they all ended up picking black women. Uh, so from the story, it says, quote, South Fulton, an Atlanta suburb and one of Georgia's newest cities, has the distinction of being perhaps the first city in the nation to have its criminal justice system led entirely by black women. Chief Judge Tiffany Carter Sellers, interim police chief Sheila Rogers, the solicitor, LaDon Jones, public defender, Vivica Powell, the court administrator, Lakeisha Cofield, the chief court clerk, Ramona Howard, court clerk, Tiffany Kinslow, and court clerk, Carrie Stevens. Many will hail this group as a definitive sign of progress in the tortured relationship between the justice system and black America. But does having a judicial system led entirely by black women automatically guarantee a greater degree of justice for residents of this city of 95,000 people? And the profile goes on from there. It's pretty lengthy, but it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, out of Spalding County, jury selection is going to get underway in the uh, murder of Timothy Coggins. Now, we've talked about this case before, back in episode 32 and 36. Coggins was the black guy that was killed for uh, socializing with a white woman, and then the police helped to cover up the murder. From the story, it says, quote, After more than 34 years, on Monday, a jury will finally be selected, and the trial for the 1983 murder of Timothy Coggins will begin. Investigators say that what they called the racially motivated murder remained unsolved for decades. But late last year, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation reopened its investigation after receiving new leads. After several new interviews, police were able to make five arrests. The Spalding County Sheriff's Office charged Milner police officer Lamar Bunn, his mother Sandra Bunn, who also worked for the department as a police dispatcher, and Spalding County Detention Officer Gregory Huffman. All of those were charged with obstruction of justice, and murder charges were filed against Frankie Gebhardt and Bill Moore Sr. Spalding County County Sheriff Daryl Dix says Coggins was murdered after socializing with a white woman. Uh, out of Washington County, you have three killer cops who've been indicted for murder. 
From that story, it says, quote, three former Washington County, Georgia deputies have been indicted by a grand jury. District Attorney Hayward Outman says the indictment came Tuesday afternoon. Henry Copeland, Michael Howell, and Rhett Scott are charged with murder, false imprisonment, and reckless conduct in connection with the tasing death of Yuri Martin. Martin died over the summer while in police custody. We'll give you the link to that story. So those are the ones out of Georgia in Illinois. We got two stories out of Illinois this week that highlights rampant fucking incompetence like like impressive incompetence impressive in a bad way so let's start with ems the chicago ems basically let a kid die because they didn't actually think to check if he was alive after he had been shot from the story it says quote a teenage boy died early tuesday more than 20 hours after he was shot at a party on the near west side and his body covered with a sheet as paramedics treated others who were hit by gunfire. Aaron Carey, 17, was among six people who were shot after two cars circled the party around 4.50 in the morning in the University Village neighborhood, Chicago police said. A woman, 22, was also killed and four men were injured. Carey's body was covered by a white sheet for at least an hour as paramedics tended to other victims. People at the edge of the crime scene began yelling as his arms and legs twitched. He ain't dead, a woman cried, as others shouted at the boy to get up. At that point, paramedics began performing chest compressions and lifted him into an ambulance. He was taken in very critical condition to Stroger, Stroger Hospital uh, and died the next day. It, it, wow. Like, pray you don't get shot in Chicago because they're liable to just let you bleed out. Uh, speaking of stupid stuff, Chicago police have apologized after they terrorized the wrong family, raided the wrong home. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, Chicago police apologized and promised to make repairs after breaking down the door of the wrong home while conducting a raid Tuesday afternoon on the south side. Around 2 p.m. Tuesday, officers raided the first floor apartment of a building near 52nd and Wells in the Fuller Park neighborhood. They damaged the front door in the process, handcuffed three people inside, then tore through the family's belongings before discovering, surprise, they'd entered the wrong home. Police said the officers went to the address listed on a warrant, but the paperwork had the wrong information. So that's out of Illinois. In Maine, we've got uh, Customs and Border Patrol inconveniencing Americans because they can, because they are drunk on power. So out of Penobscot, or Penobscot, I don't know how the hell you pronounce it. Any people in Maine, let me know. Uh, Penobscot County. Uh, it says, quote, a checkpoint set up by U.S. Customs and Border Protection. I hate the fact we call it Border Protection. It's Border Patrol. They don't protect shit. Uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents Wednesday on I-95 led to the arrest of a fugitive Haitian immigrant who previously was ordered to be deported. The random checkpoint, which was in place for 11 hours, stopped traffic in the southbound lanes between the Penobscot County towns of Howland and Lincoln. Several agents set up cones blocking the highway and then asked vehicle occupants questions about their citizenship before letting them proceed. Southbound drivers could not avoid the roadblock. Subquote, if you want to continue down the road, then yes, ma'am. We need to know what citizen, what country you're a citizen of, an agent said Wednesday evening to two reporters who went through the checkpoint. When questioned about what would happen if a driver declined to answer, he said the car would only be able to keep going if, after further questioning and upon the agent's judgment, subquote, the agent is pretty sure that you're U.S. citizens. So that particular Haitian guy that they had arrested apparently had been ordered to leave almost two decades prior. So if you think about this, you have 11 hours of Customs and Border Protection resources, 
inconveniencing other Americans, plus the deadweight economic loss that comes from you being trapped on the highway, not able to do anything where you're trying to get to your job or your recreation or whatever it is you're doing. We spent all of that time and taxpayer money to get one person who evidently hadn't been causing any trouble because in the past 20 some years he hadn't been arrested. It's a total fucking waste of taxpayer money. Uh, so that was in Maine, out of Minnesota. In Minneapolis, we got a pair of stories. Minneapolis police have shot and killed 30-year-old black man Thurman Blevins, and surprise, the circumstances of that are currently in dispute and being investigated. From the story, it says, quote, another police-involved shooting in Minneapolis has left a 30-year-old African-American man dead and local residents demanding an investigation. Witness accounts and police reports differ in the killing of Thurman Blevins in a North Minneapolis neighborhood at about 6 p.m. on Saturday. According to one account, Blevins was sitting on a curb when police rolled up and tased him. He then attempted to run away, and police shot him in the back multiple times, killing him. The version told by police is different. They said that just before 5.30 p.m., people called 911 to report a man walking in the neighborhood and randomly firing a handgun. According to the Star Tribune, subquote, officers confronted the man and a foot chase ensued that ended in shots being fired. An unidentified police officer claims a gun was found at the scene. The Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension is investigating, and Police Chief Madaria Arredondo said body camera footage from the officers involved will be made publicly available. So, quote, public trust is absolutely cornerstone to what I want to see in terms of our culture at the Minneapolis Police Department, Arredondo said, according to the Star Tribune. He added that the community, subquote, can be assured there will be a fair and thorough investigation. So keep that part in mind. Public trust is absolutely cornerstone because the very next story about the exact same fucking police department says, quote, Minneapolis police officers have repeatedly requested over the past three years that Hennepin County medical responders sedate people using the powerful tranquilizer ketamine at times over the protests of those being drugged and in some cases when no apparent crime was committed. A city report shows these are not, you know, accounts going to the press. This is a city fucking report audit. It continues, quote, on multiple occasions in the presence of police, Hennepin Healthcare EMS workers injected suspects of crimes and others who already appeared to be restrained and the ketamine caused heart or breathing failure, requiring them to be medically revived. Several people given ketamine had to be intubated. These are among the findings of an investigation conducted by the Office of Police Conduct Review, a division of the city's Department of Civil Rights. The draft report has been circulated narrowly within City Hall, but not disseminated to the public. The Star Tribune has obtained a copy. The number of documented ketamine injections during Minneapolis police calls increased from 3 in 2012 to 62 in 2017, the report found, including four uses on the same person. On May 18th, around the time the draft report was completed, Minneapolis Police Commander Todd Savageau issued a departmental order saying that officers, subquote, shall never suggest or demand EMS personnel sedate a subject. This is a decision that needs to be clearly made by EMS personnel, not Minneapolis PD officers. Minneapolis police previously had no policy addressing the drug, and the department manual classifies it as a date rape drug for its powerful sedative impact and ability to erase or alter memory. Holy fucking shit. 
the police are busy sedating people, injecting them with a hallucinogen. In addition to being a sedative, it's also a hallucinogen, sometimes against their will and in cases where no crime has been committed. God damn. That's separate and apart from them shooting people in the back. Keep that in mind. So that's Minneapolis for you. In Mississippi, in Columbus, we have the third rule of Fisk. There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. Uh, in this case, a white police officer shot and killed a black man, but then sued the city, claiming that he was racially discriminated against and got a settlement out of the deal. From the story, it says, quote, the fatal police shooting of Ricky Ball in October 2015 convulsed the city of Columbus, Mississippi. Residents marched. Some businesses, fearing a race riot because a white cop had killed a black man, closed on protest day. A city council member accused the department of planting a gun beside Ball's body. The police chief resigned. The district attorney called in state authorities to handle the case. Finally, in September 2016, a grand jury indicted the officer, Canyon Boykin, on manslaughter charges. Boykin's case still hasn't gone to trial, but if the recent past is anything to go by, he's likely to make it through without punishment and even walk away from the case ahead, handed money for his troubles. That's because shortly after he shot 25-year-old Ball as Ball ran away following a traffic stop, Boykin sued the city for racial discrimination, claiming he'd been unfairly fired for being a white cop who'd killed a black person. Just before his discrimination lawsuit was to go to trial last year, the city settled with Boykin for an undisclosed amount. Now, we've seen this before. You might remember in Minnesota, killer cop Geronimo Yanez, the guy who summarily executed Philando Castile, uh, after he was acquitted of the murder, the police department paid him to go away. They gave him like two years salary. Uh, so it's a very common thing that police can kill people and get some money out of it. Out of Montana, we have another story about a kitty diddler cop. This one's a school resource officer. From that story, it says, quote, a former Stevensville school resource officer who resigned his post earlier this month has been charged with a sex crime involving a child. Samuel Stephen Fawcett was arrested Wednesday on a warrant. He posted a $15,000 bond and was released. Fawcett will appear before Rivoli County Justice Jim Bailey on July 19th on two different felony charges. According to charging documents, the offenses occurred between October 2014 and April 2016. The victim was three to four years old. Gross. Uh, out of New York, we got three stories, four stories out of New York City. Uh, so the first one is an analysis by 538 that shows that your odds of getting bail depend almost entirely on the time of day that you happen to be arrested because that determines what judge you get. From the story, it says, quote, a 538 analysis of 105,581 cases handled by the Legal Aid Society, the largest public defender organization in New York, found that how much bail you owe and whether you owe it at all can depend on who hears your case the day you're arraigned. New York's judges are assigned to arraignment shifts, hearing every case that comes into the court during that time. Because the assignments are random, judges hear cases solely based on when people are arrested and how busy the court is, we can identify whether defendants are being treated equally regardless of who hears their case. They are not. In New York City, when clients of the Legal Aid Society who were charged with a misdemeanor in 2017 entered their initial arraignment, they had anywhere between a 2 and 26% chance of the judge setting a cash bail, depending on which judge was randomly assigned to oversee the court that day. 
For felonies, the range was even wider, anywhere between 30 and 69%. Those not assigned bail are likely to be released without having to pay, which means getting arrested on the wrong day can have a major consequence. You are more than twice as likely to have to pay your way to freedom. If you can't find the money, you're stuck in jail. That is not the purpose of the bail system. The idea is that it's there to ensure you come back to court. Several spots are abolishing cash bail entirely, and they've had good results for it. But in New York, it's simply the luck of the draw. Uh, Also out of New York City, a detective has pled guilty for repeatedly fabricating a witness. From that story, it says, quote, the recently retired NYPD detective who created phony witnesses so he could close out cases without actually investigating them pleaded guilty Tuesday to official misconduct. Thomas Rice, dubbed Detective Doolittle, was arraigned Tuesday morning, then pleaded guilty in Queens Criminal Court for not properly investigating 11 vehicle break-ins, including six said to have been witnessed by the same person, Harry Satadeo. Rice really appeared to have been wild about Harry. Queens District Attorney Richard Brown said he listed Satadeo twice as a man and four times as a woman. For the record, the person doesn't exist, Brown said. Also in New York City, we have the third rule of Fisk again. There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. From that story, it says, quote, A drug bust led to the arrest of three Nassau County police officers, two for their alleged involvement in a drug ring, and a third for allegedly conspiring to rob a patron of a local casino and an armored casino truck. Suffolk County District Attorney Timothy Seney said officers Eric Scogland and Karen Ernst accepted nearly 75 pounds of marijuana delivered from California on behalf of Daniel Caceres of Port Jefferson Station. I'm going to do a sidebar. Holy shit, that's a lot of weed. And you're talking to a guy that represents weed dealers for a living. 75 pounds is a lot. Uh, story continues. Prosecutors said Caceres had been operating a drug ring since 2016 in which he would have pot and other narcotics delivered to co-conspirators who would then deliver the drugs to Caceres. Eight other people were named as operators in Caceres's alleged drug ring. But during the course of the investigation into that drug ring, authorities found incriminating information about another Nassau County police officer. Officer Bruce Moeller is facing charges for allegedly conspiring with Caceres to rob a high roller patron at Jake's 58 Casino in May. Prosecutors said Mueller's wife, Christina, worked at the casino and informed Mueller when a high roller patron came back to the casino the day after making $75,000 in winnings. Bruce Mueller and Caceres came to the casino with weapons, according to prosecutors, in order to rob the patron. The alleged plan never came to fruition. Investigators said the Mullers also planned to rob an armored casino vehicle, and Bruce Mueller can be seen on surveillance video canvassing the area where the truck parks. Now, out of New York City, it's not all bad news. We do have a little bit of good news. Don't let it be said. I don't report good news. Uh, From that story, it says, quote, Lighting up a joint in the Big Apple could lighten some wallets, but it won't lead to handcuffs in most cases once New York City's revamped marijuana enforcement policy goes into effect on Labor Day weekend. Mayor Bill de Blasio said Tuesday police officers will shift to issuing criminal summonses for public marijuana smoking starting September 1st, a move he estimates will eliminate at least 10,000 arrests a year. The Democrat ordered the overhaul last month after a report showed persistent racial gaps in marijuana arrests. That's a big deal because right now if you're arrested for weed, the odds are high that you're going to end up going to Rikers as you're awaiting your hearing. And it just causes all sorts of problems. So a summons is the way to go. Kudos to Bill de Blasio for that. In North Carolina, we've got, Jesus Christ, 
Uh, pardon my language. I shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. We got some mess here in North Carolina. We got first ones out of Durham where we have a pay to play taking place with our planning commission. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, city council members expressed concern this week that an attorney who serves on an advisory board now represents a developer whose project he voted on two months ago. Neil Gosh, who works for Morningstar Law Group, serves on the Durham City County Planning Commission. On Monday night, he spoke at a city council meeting in favor of the proposed Rollingdale townhouse development off NC Highway 54. In April, Gosh voted to recommend the council support the project when the city county planning commission voted nine to five in favor of rezoning the property from residential suburban to a planned development residential. Residents of the nearby Woodcroft neighborhood spoke in Monday's council meeting against the 25 townhouse project, which is also near Jordan High School, Woodcroft Shopping Center, and the streets at South Point Mall. Side note, I live in this area. Like, I'm, I'm far away from this stuff, probably about four blocks or so, but I'm in this vicinity. Uh, Gosh, the only person to speak in favor of the project, said he was hired by the developer, Landon Loveless, of Underfoot Engineering Incorporated, after the Planning Commission's April 10th vote. It's nice work if you can get it. You know, you get on a commission, you get appointed, you vote for a developer, and then you use that to get you a job. It's pretty fucked up. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. Uh, out of Raleigh. We have the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. So we talked a couple podcasts back about uh, Chiron Hinton, the guy who was attacked and pretty brutally fucked up by police. Well, it turns out that one of the highway patrolmen who showed up told the police not to mention the fact that they used force to beat the fuck out of this guy. And he got caught on his body cam doing it. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a sergeant for the state highway patrol was placed on administrative duty last week after instructing two troopers to not mention that they had used force in their reports about the beating of a homeless man in Raleigh two months ago. The troopers, Tabithia Davis and Michael Blake, were fired on Friday. They are charged with assault, inflicting bodily injury, and willfully failing to discharge duties. In an April 3rd incident that left Chiron Hinton with a broken nose, fractured eye socket, and numerous dog bites after a Wake County Sheriff's Office deputy unleashed his canine on Hinton. The patrol sergeant, R.W. Goswick, was placed on administrative duty Friday, though a reason was not given. But a petition for personnel records filed last week in Wake County Superior Court shows that on an audio recording, Goswick told Davis and Blake, along with Trooper Zachary Bumgardner, to write statements that would be put on a folder with, subquote, no use of force on our part. Translation, he's telling them to lie. Uh, also out of Raleigh, we have <laughs> uh, the former elected district attorney of Caswell and Person Counties, uh, Wallace Bradshaw, has been convicted and sentenced to jail for fraud. Now, we've talked about this guy in four other podcasts, so episode 7, episode 12, episode 24, and episode 36. This is the DA north of me who I've met and talked to before who unlawfully hired his wife to work for him, and then when he was told that his wife could not work for him, he found another DA, and they did a wife swap, and basically would pay each other for their wife's work, even though neither of their wives really did anything. One of the DAs, the other one that he was working with, took a plea deal in exchange for being a witness, 
Bradshaw refused to plead and then represented himself at trial, which is fantastically stupid. There is an old aphorism that a lawyer who represents himself as a fool for a client and an idiot for his counsel. Uh, so the story says, quote, Wallace Bradshaw, a former district attorney who served in Caswell and Person counties, will lose his law license and spend time in jail for his role in a wife hiring scheme. A Wake County judge sentenced Bradshaw to between four and 14 months in prison Tuesday, one day after he was convicted of fraud and obstruction of justice charges. Bradshaw and Craig Blitzer, who served as district attorney for Rockingham County, were both accused of conspiring to hire each other's wives for jobs where they were paid for little or no work. The Wake County jury found Bradshaw guilty of five of the seven counts he was charged with, including obtaining property by false pretenses, aiding and abetting obtaining property by false pretenses, misdemeanor obstruction of justice, felonious obstruction of justice, and failure to discharge the duties of his office. Bradshaw was found not guilty of felony conspiracy and a separate obstruction of justice charge. He represented himself during the trial. Good riddance. Uh, also out of Raleigh, this is a political thing. Police can now get your prescription drug history without a warrant just because they want it. It's fucking stupid. Passed by the General Assembly, signed by the governor, both Republicans and Democrats teaming up for this bullshit, tucked away in a tiny little piece of a bill to address opioid addiction. This is the type of fuck shit that happens when you have legislators who are, you know, you have Republicans who are all about law and order and will give police whatever powers they want. And then you have Democrats who love public sector unions, which includes the police unions. So they give police whatever powers they want. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, some Republicans and Democrats disputed the need to give law enforcement access to a statewide database of drug prescriptions. But a proposal, including that change, won a final approval in the North Carolina legislature Thursday. Senate Bill 616, known as the HOPE Act, is now making its way to Governor Roy Cooper's desk. I'm going to do a sidebar. The governor signed it. This was from a couple days ago. Uh, the bill passed with no debate in the state Senate on a 41-3 to 3 vote, a day after an 87-25 to 25 vote in the House. Many House members were supportive of the bill as a whole, but criticized the component regarding law enforcement access to the Controlled Substance Reporting System. That system contains information from any doctor who has recorded prescribing controlled substances to their patients. Uh, so I went through the vote history, and the 41 to 3 is slightly a, a misnomer. You have to look. The way North Carolina is set up is every bill goes through three readings. The first reading is when it's first introduced and goes to committee. The second reading is when it's actually passed. Uh, the third reading tends to be a formality. So having a third reading passed by a lopsided margin is, is different. And I'm, I'm probably fucking up the process slightly, but that's the gist of it. So in going through the votes, 11 out of 15 Democrat senators voted yes. Only two voted no, and then two were absent. 30 out of 35 Republican senators voted yes. In the House, 27 out of 45 House Democrats voted yes, and 60 out of 75 House Republicans voted yes. So you have bipartisan supermajorities of people willing to take away more of your rights to give police more access to things without having to comply with the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. So that's in North Carolina. Out of Ohio, in Lorraine, you have the first rule of Fisk. A white police officer decided to pull over his daughter's black boyfriend 
uh, just because kid hadn't actually committed a crime. And of course, this is all caught on the dash cam to his car. From the story, it says, quote, a police officer in Ohio was fired for using the badge to deal with personal issues with his daughter's boyfriend. The officer tried to arrest him during a traffic stop. On April 16th, Lorraine patrolman John Kovac initiated a traffic stop that investigators later concluded was purely personal. The driver pulled over by Kovac was his daughter's boyfriend. Kovac later told investigators he did not approve of the relationship. Subquote, we'll make shit up as we go, he tells the boyfriend as he puts him in the cruiser. Lorraine police say the 26-year-old veteran of the force had traced his daughter's computer to a friend's home in the neighborhood. Now I'm going to note, that's bad wording on the part of the news story. He's not 26 years old. He's been on the force for 26 years. Uh, continues, quote, investigators say Kovac did not initially realize that his daughter was in the backseat of the car he pulled over. When he figured it out, he ordered her out of the car. Then his daughter confronts him about using his badge and uniform to intimidate her and her boyfriend. Now, again, all of this is on camera. Investigators say while the incident was unfolding, the dispatchers tried to send Patrolman Kovac to a road rage incident, but he did not respond to the call. An internal investigation by Lorraine police found that the traffic stop of Kovac's daughter's boyfriend was unwarranted, surprise, and that he violated the department's standards of conduct during the entire incident. As a result, he was fired. Kovac is now appealing his dismissal. The investigation also found that Kovac lied to his supervisors about the incident. I know that just shocks you. Uh, out of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, don't criticize the police or you'll get charged with felonies. A woman tried to light a flag on fire amid crowds that had assembled for Philadelphia's Pride Parade Sunday, police said. Rihanna Sagan, 18, of Woodbine, New Jersey, was arrested. Photos taken by freelance photographer Bastian Slabbers showed the arrest. She was charged with attempt to commit arson, a felony, risking a catastrophe, also a felony, recklessly endangering another person, and possessing an instrument of a crime. The district attorney's office on Wednesday dropped the arson and catastrophe charges, both felonies, but said Sagan still faces the remaining charges, which are misdemeanors. Officers found road flares protruding from Sagan's backpack, which also contained a can of paint thinner and a blue lighter stick. Now I'm going to note... The United States Supreme Court decided Texas versus Johnson almost 30 years ago. That decision came out in 1989, and it ruled that flag burning was protected speech. It was protected by the First Amendment, so keep that in mind. Uh, out of East Pittsburgh, this is the uh, the extrajudicial summary execution without due process of the week. I feel like we should make that a thing. Uh, but basically, police killed unarmed black kid, 17-year-old Antoine Rose, by shooting him in the back. And the the quantum of fuckery here is wild. So I'm not actually going to give you a quote for the main story because there's like six main stories. Uh, but essentially, a civilian recorded the police interaction from her high-rise apartment a block away. And you see a vehicle pulled over allegedly because it matched the description of one involved in a drive-by. That was the initial story. But you find out in subsequent updates that the driver who had been detained was released without charges, meaning it was not part of the drive-by because if it was, he would have been charged. So as the officer is being initially detained, the passenger door opens up and you see two kids run out of it. One of them is Antoine Rose. 
immediately after the kids get out of the car, an officer starts shooting. There's no stop. There's no police. There's no, we're going to shoot you if you don't slow down. Just immediately unloads his fucking magazine and completely shoots at both of them. Rose is hit three times in the back. So that's the initial kerfuffle happening on social media. You have this video that's been posted on Facebook showing this unarmed black kid being killed by police. Well, then police sources, and I'm putting that in air quotes, decided to tell the press that there is surveillance video showing Rose committing the drive-by and claiming that there was gun residue found on his hands. Now, those of you that work in criminal defense, you know that's bullshit because they don't do gun residue testing that quickly. There's no fucking way gun residue would have been found hours after the kid is killed. But it was so outrageous and so flat wrong that even the police chief came out and said, wait, 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 this is actually false. From that story, it says, quote, Allegheny County police are saying media reports regarding Antoine Rose that cite unnamed police sources are false. Superintendent Coleman McDonough said in a statement directed to the media, subquote, the Allegheny County Police Department continues to receive inquiries related to reports from police sources that a video of the drive-by shooting in North Braddock shows Antoine Rose firing a gun and that gunshot residue has been found on Antoine Rose's hands. According to Lieutenant Andrew Sherman of the Allegheny County Police Department's Homicide Unit, both reports are false. While ACPD does have a video showing the North Braddock incident, that video does not show Antoine Rose firing a gun. The information about gunshot residue is also false. Crime lab reports are still pending and have not yet been issued. McDonough further said the Allegheny County District Attorney's Office concurs and affirms the information provided by Sherman. That's a sign that there's so much bullshit happening when even the police chief feels compelled to say, hey, wait, this is false. But it continues. The guy who killed him was killer cop Michael Rosfeld, a white guy who had worked in four different departments over a seven year period. And here's the kicker. He was just sworn in 90 minutes before shooting this kid dead. Took his oath of office, decided to go back to put on his badge and everything else, hopped in a patrol car and said, hey, let's go hunting. But in addition, he was fired from an earlier job for beating the fuck out of some college kids and then lying about it. From that story, it says, quote, the East Pittsburgh police officer who fatally shot 17-year-old Antoine Rose on Tuesday left his last job, and I'm putting left in quotes there because he was forced to resign, left his last job at the University of Pittsburgh police after authorities discovered discrepancies, putting that in air quotes, what they mean is fucking lies, between the officer's sworn statement and evidence in an arrest. Officer Rosfeld left the University Police Department on January 18th, about a month after the Allegheny County District Attorney's Office withdrew all charges he'd pressed against three men accused of fighting in a bar. The case began on December 9th when Rosfeld responded to the garage door saloon after another officer called for assistance. When Officer Rosfeld arrived, he wrote, the other officer had three males up against a wall. The complaint said the men smelled of alcohol and were, subquote, extremely belligerent, yelling at the officer. They were charged with simple assault, defiant trespass, disorderly conduct, and public drunkenness. But all of those charges were dropped on December 21st. 
Two sources with knowledge of the situation said the charges were dropped because Officer Rosfeld's affidavit, subquote, did not match collected evidence. In other words, the guy's a fucking liar. Uh, so, of course, this has triggered protests in Pittsburgh and in a story reminiscent of Charlottesville. In at least one of those protests, a black sedan drove through a police barrier trying to run people over. They haven't arrested that person yet. So we're going to give you links to all of these stories in the show notes. There's a lot of shit going on. Uh, but basically, East Pittsburgh police gunned down a teenager for no apparent fucking reason. Uh, out of Texas, we got a lot of stories in Texas, and some of them are pretty fucking disturbing. Uh, in Bear County, a sheriff's agent, you know, you're hearing a lot of third rule of Fisk stuff within this one particular episode. Uh, sheriff's deputy has been arrested for sexually assaulting a four-year-old girl and threatening to deport her and her mother if they told authorities. From that story, it says, quote, a four-year-old girl cried out to her mother over the weekend near San Antonio. The girl told her mom that another relative had been touching her. Her mother, an undocumented immigrant, came forward even after that relative threatened her with deportation if she told authorities. It was, subquote, another heartbreaking aspect to this case, police said. This suspect utilized that to place the mother in fear that she would be deported if she did report it. That's always a concern in the undocumented community. That suspect, a family member of the girl and her mother, is a 10-year veteran of the same sheriff's office, Jose Nunez. He was arrested Sunday and charged with super aggravated assault of a child. That's a crazy crime, a super aggravated assault. But here's the kicker. He's been placed on paid administrative leave. We call that paid vacation during the investigation. Uh, in Big Wells, Texas, we have a third rule in a different capacity. At least five people were killed and several others hurt Sunday as an SUV carrying more than a dozen people crashed while fleeing from Border Patrol agents. The SUV carrying 14 people went out of control at more than 100 miles an hour and overturned on Highway 85, ejecting most of the occupants. Subquote, from what we can tell, the vehicle ran off the road, it caught gravel, and then tried to recorrect. Dimmit County Sheriff Marion Boyd said, adding that subquote that caused the vehicle to turn over several times. Four victims were dead at the scene. He said at least one, possibly two others, died at the hospital. The Border Patrol said in a statement Sunday night, the two other vehicles had been traveling alongside the SUV earlier in the day, and agents suspected they were conducting a smuggling event, but he did not elaborate. So here's the thing. As much technology as we have, and I've said this before, this SUV could have been stopped later. You get the license plate number. We have cameras on every overpass everywhere in the country tracking these license plates. All right. You have helicopters. You have all sorts of things you can do to find these folks later. There's no need to go in a high speed chase, which in this case killed several people that apparently were the ones fleeing the police. But they also could have killed several bystanders as well. These high speed chases are fucking stupid. Uh, Leon Valley, also in Bear County, there was a mass arrest of attendees at a fake press conference uh, because they were live streaming, apparently. Now, this is a crazy situation. I can't find any local media covering the story, but I'm going to give you a link to the YouTube video showing the arrest. As best I can tell from the comments, there was an earlier press conference that had been live streamed. And during that live stream, someone posted the police chief's address. 
So apparently they arrested the guy who posted the address, claiming that he was making a terroristic threat or something to that effect, called a press conference allegedly to announce the arrest. But in reality, what they did was they arrested every person who attended the new press conference. The new press conference was fake, arrested all of those people claiming that they were witnesses to this initial crime because apparently they did the original live stream. Like it's so it's so stupid. It's incredibly bizarre. If there's any media near Bear County that can piece together what the fuck is going on, uh, that's totally ridiculous. So those are the stories out of Texas. In Washington, we have another situation where Customs and Border Protection, I'm putting that in air quotes, has totally lost its fucking mind. A French citizen visiting British Columbia in Canada was jogging along a beach, and this particular stretch of beach does not have a sign saying, hey, by the way, this is the U.S.-Canada border. So she was arrested for illegally entering the country and detained for two weeks before she was finally released back into Canada. From the story, it says, quote, A visitor from France says she was jogging along the beach south of White Rock, British Columbia, when she crossed the U.S. border without realizing it. So began a two-week nightmare that landed her in a prison jumpsuit. Sedella Roman, 19, didn't know it at the time, but as she ran southeast along the beach on the evening of May 21st, she crossed a municipal boundary and, shortly after, an international border. As the tide started to come in, she veered upward and onto a dirt path before stopping to take a photo of the picturesque setting. She turned around to head back, and that's when she was apprehended by two U.S. Border Patrol officers. I appreciate the CBC, Canada Broadcasting Company, because they don't call them border protection. They call them border patrol, which is what they are. They don't protect shit. Uh, Continue, subquote, an officer stopped me and started telling me I had crossed the border illegally, Roman told CBC News. Roman was held in custody for two weeks before immigration officials on both sides of the border confirmed she was allowed back into Canada. She was then transferred back into British Columbia. Now, you'll be shocked, shocked to find out that uh, Sedella Roman is brown. Out of West Virginia in Charleston. So we've talked in a prior episode about Supreme Court Justice Alan Lowry and how he was suspended pending charges. Well, the indictment has been unsealed and the dude's facing a lot of fucking charges. My goodness. From the story, it says, quote, a federal grand jury has indicted West Virginia Supreme Court Justice Alan Lowry on a number of serious charges from fraud to making false statements and witness tampering. The indictment says the FBI investigated Lowry under suspicion that for years he engaged in a scheme to defraud the government of West Virginia and that he lied to FBI agents when he was questioned in March. Lowry, 47, has been suspended without pay, the state Supreme Court says. Federal charges against the judge were unsealed on Wednesday, more than three months after that interview. The indictment says that Lowry falsely claimed mileage for car trips, in which he had actually used a Supreme Court vehicle and used a government credit card for gasoline, used official vehicles and credit cards for personal use under false pretenses, lied to other justices of the Supreme Court about his vehicle usage, illegally converted to his own personal use a valuable and historic desk that belonged to the Supreme Court, taking it home to his own office, lied about his actions to government investigators, 
tried to mislead them by accusing others of malfeasance, engaging in other fraudulent conduct. In addition, the indictment says Lowry tried to influence a Supreme Court employee's testimony after questions arose last October about the cost of renovating and furnishing his office. Now, here's the kicker. This is one of those things where you would think this was the onion. Uh, In addition to being a judge, Lowry wrote a book about political corruption in West Virginia that was published in 2006. Uh, So that's in West Virginia. Out of Wisconsin, we got our last two stories for this week in Madison. Uh, Turns out you can rape people and get a light sentence as long as you meet certain criteria, namely being rich and white. From the story, it says, quote, a judge on Thursday sentenced a former University of Wisconsin at Madison student to three years in prison for sexually assault. So three years. Keep that in mind as we go through the crimes. Uh, Sexually assaulting three female students and choking or stalking two others. Dane County Circuit Judge Stephen Elke also sentenced Alec Cook, 22, to eight years of extended supervision once he's released from prison. Prosecutors were seeking 19 years behind bars, while defense attorneys sought probation. Elke said he had to give Cook credit for having no criminal record, no bail violations, and sparing the victims a trial. This is fucking ludicrous. You know how many people on their first rape, even though they have no prior convictions, go to prison for a long-ass time? Uh, But it continues. Quote, Cook, a former UW-Madison business student, was initially charged with more than 20 crimes against nearly a dozen women, including misdemeanor disorderly conduct and felony sexual assaults for several incidents between September 2014 and October 2016. He pleaded guilty in February to three counts of third-degree sexual assault. He also pleaded guilty to strangulation and stalking charges. After reaching the plea deal, the remaining charges were dismissed, but the judge was allowed to consider them in sentencing Cook. Now, here's the thing. In North Carolina, second-degree sex offense is a Class C felony. That means you have a minimum 58 to 100 months in prison for each charge. That's five to eight years per offense. You're telling me I had a client who had attacked nearly a dozen women charged with nearly 20 charges, and he's only going to get three years plus eight years of probation? Fuck's sake. That is insane to me. What's the guys of the, uh, what's the name of the Stanford rapist, the swimming guy? Was it, was it Brock Turner? Was that him? Yeah, this is, this is like Brock Turner part two. You know, this is nuts. Absolutely fucking nuts. You know, I'm all for leniency about certain crimes, but, you know, guys that are going around raping almost a dozen women, strangling others, stalking others, three years is just insane. It's absolutely fucking insane. All right, so that's out of Madison. In Milwaukee, we have the Sterling Brown story. Now, we talked about this in episode 66 and 69. The guy plays for the Milwaukee Bucks. He was illegally parked in a Walgreens parking lot. Police showed up, escalated the situation, pulled out a gun, tased him, beat his ass while he was on the ground, everything else. He's filed a federal civil rights suit, which was expected. But as part of that, the media have gone through some of the exhibits and some of the shit is fucking insane. Like these police are dumber than a bucket full of rusty thumbtacks. Jesus. From the story, it says, quote, Milwaukee Bucks rookie Sterling Brown filed a federal civil rights lawsuit Tuesday against the Milwaukee Police Department and the city. The lawsuit claims wrongful arrest and excessive force by police during the incident on January 26th outside a Walgreens store on the city's south side. 
The police department still has not released the full video footage from officers' body cameras and dash cameras. It also hasn't provided any reports from the incident or internal affairs investigation. A records request for those materials remains pending. In the meantime, the lawsuit provides new details about what happened that night. Now, I'm going to give you a link to the story because there are certain bullet points here that you know, matter for the story purposes, but don't really matter for our purposes because you've heard me talk about it already. Uh, For example, an officer drew his gun during the arrest. That's one of the things they knew. Officers did not give Brown a Miranda warning. That's not a surprise. It's also irrelevant. Uh, One officer repeatedly calls Brown a douchebag. Okay. But there are two parts that will just, I will say they'll blow your mind, but you've been listening to us for a while, so probably not. One of them is, quote, an officer fell asleep on the job during the arrest. So I mentioned in the initial batch of body cam video that we talked about in a prior episode that one officer was singing money, 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 money because he was going to request overtime pay. It says, quote, a few minutes after that call, Officer James Collins fell asleep on the job, the lawsuit says, citing more body camera footage. Collins apparently slept in his squad car between 3.38 in the morning and 3.50 in the morning. But the kicker is that one of the officers repeatedly posted on Facebook assorted racist memes as well as a post about this particular incident. From that segment of the story, it says, quote, hours after the arrest, Officer Eric Andrade wrote, subquote, nice meeting Sterling Brown of the Milwaukee Bucks at work this morning, exclamation point, LOL, hashtag fear the deer. And there's a screenshot, of course. It continues, quote, more than a week after the department released video of Brown's arrest leading to a public outcry, Andrade wrote a post about J.R. Smith of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Subquote, I hope J.R. Smith double parks in Walgreens handicapped parking spots when he's in Milwaukee. Plus, there's other assorted racist memes making fun of the black player's hair and other stuff with all of this screenshotted. You know, one, one of the things that I deal with repeatedly with the people I represent is that police are smart enough to check social media. So if they commit a crime and they post evidence about it, that gets used against them. Well, guess what, geniuses? That applies when you get sued too. fucking dumbasses. Uh, so that is it. For this week's criminal justice fuckery, we do not have a law 140 this week because I didn't think we were going to have time to get through it. Uh, We will be back with a normal episode next Monday. Uh, If you like what you have heard so far, well, not necessarily the stories, but at least my presentation of them, uh, please do us a favor and leave us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts as well as a written review uh, or do that on Stitcher or whatever place you happen to get your podcasts. And as always, on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, thank you all so much for listening. Have a blessed week, and we will talk to you next Monday. Take care.